1: at Let It Roll Cast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at Podcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www pantheompodcast.com. Today, Nate hosts a Let It Roll telepathic interview with the still living but unavailable Andrew Lug Oldham to discuss his second memoir, Too Stoned. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're having another one of our telepathic interviews, because I've never been able to get Andrew Goldham on the show. And Today we're going to continue our discussion of of his work, and this is a discussion of his second memoir called Two Stoned by Andrew Goldham, and it continues to chronicle his adventures as the manager of the Rolling Stones, owner and founder of... Uh, Immediate records, manager of the small faces, producer of the small faces, the poets, many other artists um the first book ends in England. The second book starts with the Stone's first trip to the United States, and it was a whole new ball game. They were not the Beatles. they did not wait until they were already number one on the American charts before they came over and And you know if you know the Beatles story, you know there was a, quite a bit of serendipity to that that when they booked the Ed Sullivan show appearance, they had not yet scored a number one hit, et cetera, et cetera. But regardless, everything worked out such that Capitol Records sunk $100,000 into promoting the Beatles. They did the you know, Ed Sullivan show, the I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one. The Stones had none of that. They barely had any chart action whatsoever in the United States. And um, outside of New York and Los Angeles, basically nobody knew who they were. And they were on London Records, which is a pretty weird record label. Uh, in the UK, they were on Decca, And DECA and EMI were the two big meta labels in Britain. EMI had multiple labels. Parlophone, which had the Beatles, was just one of them. Um, Decca, as far as I know, only had the one label, but they were just as big as EMI. Massive, massive label. But they didn't own American Decca. Um... And that's not entirely clear to me, but Jack Cap founded American Decca in the 30s and I think bought the rights to the name from UK Decca. So they had a subsidiary called London Records that usually put out things like Mantovani string collections, and it was not a hip or important pop label at all. Nonetheless, they claim that they spent $85,000 promoting The Stones' first album, which in Britain was called The Rolling Stones, and had this beautiful David Bailey photograph on the cover with no writing on it whatsoever. I believe it might have said Decca Records, and that was it. It didn't say The Rolling Stones. It didn't have a title. It just had this picture. In America, it said The Rolling Stones – England's newest hitmakers and and really ruined the effect. So he was already not impressed with London Records and what they were doing. He opens the second half of the second book with a scene in Bob Cruz's apartment in the famous Dakota building and that's the uh apartment building where rosemary's baby was filmed it's also the apartment building where john lennon was murdered if if you go to new york now and go to strawberry fields in central park it's the big scary pair of buildings right across um uh the street from central park but nonetheless bob Crewe was a record producer and label owner who uh had been i guess the four seasons frankie valley in the four seasons was his biggest act but he was uh Uh, Produced Freddie Cannon and a number of other hit hit acts but he has this lavish apartment in the Dakota and it completely blows Andrew Lou Goldham's uh, mind because nobody in England in the pop business is making that kind of money even Nori Paramore who was George Martin's rival at EMI and who was putting his own name on the B side of every song that he produced and, and you know stealing publisher royalties or you know but stealing is a bit harsh, but allegedly improperly taking from the publishing royalties of all these uh, songs that he hadn't written or that you know weren't the hit side. Even Nori Paramore didn't have anything like this. This is an absolutely lavish apartment. Oh. And Oldham spends quite a bit of time painting the scene of what it was like. For New York Pop Society and Bob Crew was a really well-rounded guy. I mean, like Andy Warhol would show up at his parties and stuff like that. It wasn't just show business reptiles; it was also kind of the art scene, the fashion scene, uh, moneyed people in general. That sort of you know sets this town of aspiration. But then they go on the Les Crane show, and this is a local New York show. But it was you know back at that point in time. a lot of local television shows had big reach in their metro areas. Musk Crane was one of those. As Oldham describes it, he says, um, the stones were a small cult, a collector's item, i.e. we didn't mean shit. We did the Les Crane show, hosted by some stagger brained, lacquered pimp with a smile and demeanor so cut out and fake, we felt like we'd stopped off on the wrong set and were in Hogan's Heroes Meets the Twilight Zone. God, suddenly old Auntie Beebe, and that means the BBC, seemed great and far seeing in comparison, and we missed her so. It's okay to have your home kind question and ridicule you, but I took this vulturistic gnawing and nitpicking at the Stone's very soul as a personal violation of all. All that was dear to me. Brian Jones looked like he'd been turned inside out, his heart and soul flayed and scalped before his very own eyes. He hurt and we hurt for him, though naught was said except for a curse on those stillborn Yanks. If we'd had anything to declare at Ellis Island, perhaps it was that our skins were not as thick as we thought. The stone's collective leathery eye had not yet formed. And that's an interesting moment. It's one of the few times you're ever gonna hear Andrew Luke express any sympathy for Brian Jones's feelings. But Brian Jones warm on his sleeve. He cared very much about the Stones and took them very, very seriously, which was kind of the source of his beef with Andrew the Goldham. Even though Brian Jones was the kind of guy you didn't want your daughter messing with, Brian didn't want to be marketed that way. Brian wanted the Stones to be marketed as this very serious musical uh, quest to honor rhythm and blues. But at the same time as Andrew... All the Keith Richards, have both said, you know, he would have played the Dwayne 80 Gruddy's tits to make it. So Jones's schizophrenia, even then, was causing trouble. And then they um, go from New York straight to L.A., and they're on the Dean Martin show. And it's very much a repeat of the Les Crane experience with Dean Martin um, skipping all the rehearsals and showing up just for the live taping, palpably drunk and mercilessly mocking uh, the Stones, and um this was you know basically the kind of reception they got and then they played a show in san bernardino that was was quite successful packed house and, and they their shows in new york were successful as well but then they get sent to san antonio during uh what oldham calls the texas state fair which i doubt it because the texas state fair always happens in dallas but nonetheless there was some kind of rodeo going on um later on uh, we find out that they met Bobby Keys, who goes on to become their sax player, the guy who plays the sax break on Brown Sugar and shared the same birthday with Keith Richards and toured with the Stones for well over a decade in the 70s and 80s. Oldham didn't, didn't mention him, but he does mention that uh, in Texas, Brian made some attempt to be at one with the locals, but with him it was hard to tell what was real and what was an ongoing insatiable cry for attention. And so Oldham realizes that this tour is a flop and that the Stones are pretty freaked and desperate uh, for something cool to happen. And so he calls Phil Spector and Phil Spector helps him arrange a couple of days of recording in chess studios in Chicago. And this is for the Stones, the Holy Land. This is where Muddy Waters and Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and Howlin' Wolf and so many other great blues artists and rock and roll artists had recorded their greatest hits. And so the Stones are just absolutely thrilled to be recording there it's also the source of a story that's long been debunked but with keith, but which keith richards insists on retelling and apparently he's been telling it for 60 years that when they got there that muddy waters was painting the walls and doing handyman work around the studio which is by all accounts just complete bs that muddy waters drove a cadillac and, you know, he might have had a paternalistic relationship with uh, Leonard and Phil Chess, the Chess brothers who own the record label, but he was definitely not painting any studios. He was not carrying people's luggage into the studio. He he, he was not treated like a laborer. He uh, was treated like a star and ripped off like a star. He wasn't, he wasn't um, doing manual labor for a dollar an hour or a dollar a day or anything like that. Uh, Oldham tells the story of how uh, a DJ, a New York DJ called Murray the K, and Murray the K, if he's remembered at all today, it's for being the fifth Beatle, which he self-appointed himself. But Steph tells me it's time for our first um, song. And this is a demo of Jagger and Richard's Heart of Stone recorded in London before it was presented to the Rolling Stones. This is not the Rolling Stones version, and I've selected a piece of it that features Jimmy Page, future Led Zeppelin guitarist, on uh, playing the guitar solo. This is Mick Jagger and Keith Richards doing A Heart of Stone with some London Session Men. And that was Mick Jagger and Keith Richards demo version of Heart of Stone produced by Andrew Lee Golden featuring Jimmy Page uh, on the guitar solo. If you listen to Stone's version, you'll notice that Keith plays a very unusual solo for him one with a beginning middle and an end and that it's completely copped from this jimmy page solo it's it's uh, very insightful into keith richard's creative process which if the dude hears it he can play it back in some version it's not as slick or as accomplished as jimmy page's guitar playing by any means but he he heard enough to get the basic gist and they recorded so much at chess That they were able to get a whole EP out of it in England called the Five by Five EP, which went all the way to number 19 on the singles charts. And this followed their first album, um, going, you know, monopolizing number one on the album charts for months and even charting on the singles charts briefly. So by this time, the Stones are a significant unit mover in England. And the version of, oh, and I didn't even get to the point of the Murray the K story. Murray the K was this DJ in new york who had um capitalized on the beatles hype and and arrival and and got them to come to the studio and dubbed himself the fifth Beatle. and he did the same thing with the stones where he gave them just the vip act played their records a lot talked, had them on the studio and over to the studio gus on the show but while oldham and the stones were at bob cruise party murray the k gave him a single by a group called the Valentinos uh, of a song called It's All Over Now. And this is, uh, the Valentinos were Bobby Womack's group, and they were on Sam Cooke's SAR record label. and And this record was produced by Sam Cooke. Bobby Womack was very much a mentee of his mentor, Sam Cooke, and the song, was barely out. It just started hitting on the R&B charts, and um, the Stones covered it, and it was an immediate number one hit, uh, their first number one hit in England, and one of the first uh, songs that they recorded to bubble under on the uh, American charts. So it was very uh, big... um, Kind moment for DJ Murray the K to give uh, Oldham that song and hip him to that track, which he might not have heard otherwise. And that's one interesting thing about the Stones: the way they describe it, especially looking back, as they always talk about, "Oh yeah, we were always just playing these old old black songs, songs by all these old black artists." But what they were really doing was picking chart current chart hits. I mean, other than you know some of the Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry and Bob Diddley covers that were older but not that much it wasn't until the late 60s that they started doing songs you know from the 30s and stuff um robert johnson covers and things like that in the 60s they tended to cover songs from the 50s or more often songs from the 60s they would just uh you know go go to an american record store and grab whatever the hot singles on the r&b charts were and whip out covers, covers of them. Um, and then there's an, also an interesting aside where, where uh, Oldham talks about his mother's feelings about the stones and that um, Keith was her favorite and that she uh, was charmed by Keith when he smuggled a dog in through customs at Heathrow Airport. Somebody had given him a puppy in America and he, he liked the dog enough to smuggle him on the plane and bring him through and that charmed A.L.O.'s mother He also goes into why she did not like Mick. and Apparently, uh, early on in their professional relationship, Mick and Andrew had been out and about and uh, went back to Andrew's house to eat breakfast, a late night breakfast, and get some sleep. And they um, ended up both bedding down in Andrew's bed. Andrew claims nothing happened between them, but... And Andrew's mother goes to work at 7 or something in the morning and comes home at 4.30 and they're still asleep. And she walked into Andrew's room and there there he and Mick are all wrapped around each other. And she uh, felt that was a bit much, um, never never quite uh, took to Mick Jagger. And that's part of the reason that uh, Alda moved out of her house and moved in with Mick and Keith not just to solidify his relationship with and dominance of the band's power dynamic, but also to get away from his prying mother. Another character that I haven't introduced is is Sheila Klein, who is Oldham's first wife and the mother of his uh, first children. Had a strange relationship with her uh, insofar as he kind of kept it compartmentalized away from the Stones and this scene in London because he played off of this perception That he was gay or bi, because there were so many managers in the scene at this point. Brian Epstein of the Beatles, Robert Stigwood, who's later going to manage the Bee Gees and Eric Clapton, Kit Stamp of the of the Who, and and others that you know were flaming out gay men and and were a big part of the scene. And ALO, um, who's admittedly bisexual but but he he played that aspect up publicly but privately he was dating a nice jewish girl named sheila klein and and sheila's got a great quote about mick jagger uh, she said, Andrew used to get hysterical from being at mixed beck and call all the time. He said he felt like a nursemaid, and that's when he went to the doctors and was getting stuff prescribed for himself. Then he started mixing the prescribed with the non prescribed and he'd manufacture what mood he wanted to be in by what he was taking, thinking that would give him some kind of control, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It was very intense at that time, and I suppose for him to have the courage that he needed. Because Mick could be absolutely ghastly. If you think about the sound of the name Jagger, it's very pointy edges. Mick would whinge and whine a lot. You know that scene in Spinal Tap with the sandwich? That's what he was like. And she's referring to a scene uh, where um, the Christopher Guest character in Spinal Tap is uh, complaining because the bread they've been given backstage is square and the meat is round and is too big for the bread, and there's no way to fold the meat such that it fits tidily inside the bread. So I just find that to be a hilarious description of Mick Jagger. It says, that's what he was like. I don't think he ever said one pleasant word to me, not one word. He was very jealous and wanted Andrew's attention all the time. If I wanted attention from Andrew, I had to jump up and down louder than Mick. It was very hard work, very hard work. So that's, that's um, some insight into the Mick uh, Jagger, what it, what it was like to manage a young Mick Jagger. In the meantime, Oldham also describes this attitude of violence that starts to surround the Stone's camp. And um, he even says at one point that a thirsty evil was starting to permeate our proceedings. And he he blamed it on things that's seen and done in America and their absorption of violent American culture. but given the fact that he hired a driver named Reg King called Reg the Butcher or Reg the Killer uh, to drive him around and and essentially act as an enforcer for him. And there's dozens of stories in both books about Reg King's antics. And, uh, you know, the guy was a total character. Oldham was very fond of him, clearly abused this guy's propensity for violence. And, and uh, ultimately, Reg King... Um, ended up running over a fan while the stones were trying to get away from a crowd scene. And, and uh, that caused him to lose his license and then lose his job. And, you know, Andrew was sad about that, but he went on and and found a new goon to replace Reg King. But there's this story about Reg King and Keith Richards catching up with Robert Stigwood. Uh, This is actually in the first book, but the Stigwood um, had promoted one of their tours and had, over-guaranteed, um, had over-promised how much he was going to be able to pay them, and ended up uh, shorting them 16,000 pounds. And so a couple months later, uh, Keith and Andrew and Reg cornered Stigwood in a stairwell at uh, one of the pop clubs in London, and Keith um, punched him in the nuts 16 times. Each time he punched him, he'd say, 1,000 pounds, bam, 2,000 pounds, bam. Punch him again, you know, did it 16,000 times, 16 times, not 16,000 times. But that's how Keith Richards handled his business and how Andrew Goldham handled his business. And David Bailey, the legendary fashion photographer who took the first uh, two Stones album covers, has another story about being out uh, in London with Andrew in 1964. And uh, he said some guy started wolf whistling us and calling us uh, gay. Andrew went over and stuck his heel on the guy's foot while he was sitting down and then grabbed him by the tie and shoved his face down into the food real fast. All the guys' mates, the whole table completely backed off. Andrew was skinny, but he was fast and mean like a weasel. And so that's um that's Angular Golden in a nutshell. Um, not one to fool with. And and all through this period, the Stones are continuing to deliver uh, on his mandate of being outrageous. But first, let's let let's go ahead and hear another song. This is um, Down in the Bottom. This is a cover of, I believe, a Howlin' Wolf song featuring Brian Jones on slide guitar that was recorded at those chess sessions and never released, uh, which is a head-scratcher to me because it's a killer track. This is The Rolling Stones, Down in the Bottom. jones conspiracy uh conspiravists like myself will tell you that this this song was left off of the albums just because it did feature brian jones playing slide guitar so well this was the rolling stones doing down at the bottom recorded uh, recorded at chess studios in 1964 um, they recorded a lot of tracks put them out on the five by five ep and also the 12 by five ep some of their best uh, early early recordings but um, meanwhile the stones are continuing to shock England. And and um, th- they were featured on Jukebox Jury, Jukebox Jury, which is a very popular uh, British pop show. It was one of only two British pop shows on the air at that time. And they were both on at the same time on Friday Friday night. So if you wanted to watch, uh, I believe it was Ready, Steady, Go that went up against Jukebox Jury. But Jukebox Jury was a very popular show where They would have a panel of celebrity guests. They would play a snippet of a new song without telling them who it was, and the panelists would have to say if it was a hit or a miss. And the Stones were so rude and poorly mannered that it became a national scandal. Unfortunately, the the BBC didn't keep their tapes, and so we don't have the tape isn't extant. But Oldham says that you know that Brian and Bill. Wyman tried to be polite at first, but Mick, Keith, and Charlie weren't having any of it. And pretty soon, Brian and Bill were acting up just like the rest of them. And then, uh, then there's a classic story in here about a gig they played at Blackpool that ended in a complete riot. And the thing about Blackpool is it's a, it's a British vacation town on the seaside. But what they didn't realize was that they had been booked uh, the same week that the city of Glasgow closed the factories and the uh, toughest people in Scotland went on vacation. And so Blackpool was full of basically Begbie from um, train spotting, if you've ever seen that film. The, the, the Germans even have a word that translates to mean poison dwarf for Glaswegians because they fought them in so many wars and are so afraid of the little people. Let's see, I'll, I'll read you the description, Andrew's description of the riot. He says uh, The Stones kicked off their three month Secure the Homeland tour on 24th July 64 at the Empress Ballroom on as good as real Beatles home turf. Blackpool. The seaside holiday resort had been invaded by drunken Braveheart laddies who'd stormed south of the border looking for a really good bad time, your prototypical football hooligans. The stone started into a tight show, acting oblivious to the ball of, think you're as good as the Beebles? rebel yells, gobs, and scowls that latrined, hooted, and hollered from the swaying front rows of inbred factory fodder. Mick played it close to the chest and smothered his valence into the band so as not to escalate the goading into pitchforks. Brian Jones went for the opposite. He took the moment as his to upstage the sensibly reticent Mick and started off on a preening, affected dance taunting the drunken butch frontliners. From the semaphoric pit, all flags signaled danger and rage as the occupants begin a contest to see which of them could gob on a stone. Had Brian made it to Altamont, nobody would, get, would have gotten out alive. I think that's, just, that's absolutely one of my favorite Andrew Lou Goldham quotes about Brian Jones. If Brian Jones had been at Altamont, nobody would have gotten out alive. Then he turns the storytelling over to Bill Wyman from his memoir, Stone Alone, and he says, Bill says, Keith was livid. He moved over to where Brian was being abused and gave the ringleader a warning between songs. Minutes later, Keith himself was spat on. Outraged, he retaliated by jamming the heel of his boot down on the knuckles of the spitting troublemaker who had been leaning with his hands and chin resting on the lip of the stage. Nor did he end it there. After taking one step backwards, he plunged the toe of his boot into the lout's nose. In the ensuing riot, we would have been slaughtered if the stage hadn't been six feet high. And then he turns it over to Ian Stewart, also from Wyman's book, Stone Alone who says, it was very, very nearly the date on my gravestone. There were no cops, no bouncers, just a couple of old retainers in uniform at each corner of the stage. Then one guy in the front spat at Keith, and Keith kicked him in the head, and that was it. Good night. The whole place erupted. Keith thought he was God and that he could kick one of these guys and get away with it. You know? This is this is the kind of uh, stuff that the Stones are dealing with at virtually every show. Not every show was full of um, Glaswegian factory workers on vacation, but um, almost every show ended in a riot and a storming the stage. You know, the craziness was just uh, on ten at all times, and, and which leads to the next anecdote, which is uh, Andrew Lee Goldham, and we've described before in the last episode how he was manic depressive and prone to these sudden. Plunges in a deep depression, especially if they'd just been successful. And so things are going so well. He flipped out and once again uh, fled the fled for the continent. And he put out some press releases. And one headline ran: "Andy won't be handy for the Stones." The article stated: "The six Rolling Stone is retiring from show business." And went on and on in that vein. I don't enjoy it anymore. I told them there are a lot of talented people my age in this country, but there's no room for us to move. You start out wanting to earn loot, and when you get it, there's nothing left. The article concluded: "Oldham has been mainly instrumental in building the Rolling Stones image. We wonder if a." him go the very next week melody maker ran a headline that uh ran the same interview under the full under the banner stones man says i quit he says the rolling Stones should have fired or disowned me but they knew this was just a stray mangled bullet they knew that i still had quite a few live chambers uh to fire on their behalf then there's a a classic when he comes back to London, he says, Back in London, I looked around me and saw the commotion I had caused via the Melody Maker piece. I hope I mumbled an apology to Keith, Mick, Bill, and Charlie about letting the side down and having spoken out of turn in public. I also hoped Brian Jones would not sense an ally and invite me to hang. I then basically rolled over the whole event, went to sleep, got up, and went back to work. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know... <laughs> Another classic moment. Then there's an anecdote that I have to share. Uh, there's a lot of people in the book that I'm not talking about much because they're sort of peripheral fa- figures to the Stone story, but, but they're very central to the London scene. And so somebody like Kim Fowley Who's, uh, you know, best known as the the manager of the Runaways in the '70s, but he also uh, wrote and produced the song "Ali Oop," which was a big hit in the in the early '60s. And he came to London in the mid '60s and and managed an American act called P.J. Proby, who was kind of an Elvis impersonator and and. Uh, had a pretty successful run in England and covered some Beatles songs. And um, he's got a story about hanging out at PJ Proby's house where PJ Proby lived with a couple members of the pretty things. And in comes Brian Jones. That's where I met Brian for the first time that night. We're all sitting there chatting away and then it's time to go home. Proby and I look at each other and say, where's the cat? We had a kitten that one of the fans had given Proby. Wait a minute. Brian Jones had his coat, button. I think he stole our cat. All four of us went thundering out in the street and chased him. And there's Brian with PJ Proby's kitten under his shirt and coat. We didn't want to fight him. We agree with you. It's a nice cat, but it's our fucking cat. Don't steal it. Brian says, well, you guys are bastards. How could you possibly be nice to this cat? Proby says, I don't mistreat little animals. Only people in the record business. I love my cat. Give me my fucking cat back. And that was the least amount of perversion I'd ever seen from two weird rock and roll guys. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, uh, you know one of my favorite Brian Jones anecdotes there. And then he talks about going back to LA, and um, for yet another American tour. And he describes what it was like. Uh, he he checks in with Phil Spector, his mentor and advisor. And Spector's been having. Uh, a bit of a struggle since the Beatles hit and um, I'll take my sponsor break when we come back we'll talk about Phil Spector playing You've Lost That Loving Feeling for Andrew the Goldham and Keith Richards
0: Hey
3: Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here you caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you
0: Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal dot com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And so um Aldham is visiting Phil Spector at his office and the the Stones had just done that Sullivan show in New York a couple days earlier and Spectre complimented on, on you know great Sullivan show. The guys were terrific. Then he went back to what he'd been doing. He had a white-labeled 45 RPM test pressing on the turntable, and he put it on play. The room was filled with this amazing sound. I had no idea what it was, but it was the most incredible thing I'd ever heard. I slowly and numbly felt my way through the oral maze and discerned what I thought were two black guys singing a very sad, tortured, oh-so-labored and stated regret about things she didn't do anymore when they kissed, of eyes no Longer closing when they called her name, or was it kissed her lips? Underneath lay a bed of sustained everything, drones of echoed majestic hurt that lasted forever, the only movement provided by a La Bomba thick bass on quenal barbitone. Come the chorus, the track is one started a stop start, tempo flayed, ricocheted beat as voices, angels, and strings strained, strained in Wagnerian classical ache, followed by another verse of higher pain. And I'm just quoting that just because I thought. Uh, it's interesting to, to to hear how Phil Spector's contemporaries regarded his work. And that something like You've Lost That Loving Feeling, which obviously went on to become one of the biggest hits of all time, was just completely shocking to uh, his contemporaries. There are stories about Brian Wilson pulling his car over and crying when he first heard the Renette's version of Be My Baby. So uh, just getting that out there. And, and then another anecdote that that Alden tells is when uh, he got an invitation to watch Frank Sinatra record at the Capitol Records studios. And he, uh, he asked if he could bring a guest and he was told he couldn't be Mick Jagger. So he brought Keith Richards and he knew Jagger wouldn't want to see Frank Sinatra record anyway. But so he brings Keith Richards and they watch Sinatra record. And at the end of it, exchange firm handshakes, uh, and get introduced uh, to Frank. And uh, the mutual respect is is interesting, even for a young upstart at the time like Keith Richards. Frank had plenty of respect um, for somebody who showed up and behaved himself in the studio. And then the next uh, character I want to introduce is Jack Nietzsche, who was uh, Phil Spector's arranger and a session man, uh, played on so many uh, Wrecking Crew records, Phil Spector records, produced Neil Young, et cetera, et cetera. But he becomes the Stones' key sideman in L.A. When they record in L.A., any time you hear a Stones record that was recorded in L.A. between 65 and 67, if you hear keyboards on it, if it's a blues figure, it's probably Ian Stewart. And this is Andrew Oldham's description. If it's weird, it's probably Brian Jones, but everything else uh, was Jack Nietzsche piano organ harpsichord whatever um he calls him the denseness the body the glue it's jack jack Nietzsche. he uh said that um if I were to try to define his contribution, I'd say he provided the melodic bond, the un- undercurrent to Keith and Brian's layers of guitar brainwash. And uh, talks about how he he invented a fake instrument called the Nietzsche phone that he uh, did press releases about claiming that Jack Nietzsche had invented a, uh, an instrument made from a toy keyboard played through uh, two double amps. That was just BS for the press. He also tells the story of Brian Wilson uh, coming into the studio to, to see the Stones record. And, and they would have big parties in the studio. But they would keep the studio itself closed off. And so there would be a big party going on in the outer rooms. But in the control room in the studio itself, it would just be the nine key figures in the stones. It would be the five stones, Andrew Oldham, Jack Nietzsche, and uh, Ian Stewart. But out in the lobby, there would be people like Brian Wilson and Kim Fowley and other L.A. seamsters partying. And he tells the story of when Brian Wilson saw them record and, and uh, had to take to his bed for two days afterwards because he was just so blown away by what the stones were doing and, and had felt such competitive pressure to keep up uh, it's it's hard to imagine being brian wilson and feeling like obliged to keep up with the stones you have a completely opposite set of talents but and nonetheless he was he was paying attention to what they were doing and keeping up and then um he talks about the the more stuff that they record in L.A. and he kind of conflates the times. He he jumps back and forth between '65 and '66, willy nilly. But but he says a he tells a story that um. Back to the subject of keyboards and of the faithful, it seemed light years ago that day in 1963 that I'd set my back office, Shea Eric Easton, and decreed to Mick and Brian that Roland had to have a G on the end and that the Rolling Stones could only be five, ergo Ian Stewart would have to go. A lot would then happen to all of us on the good ship Rock and Pop. Ten years down the pike and into the 70s, all the rules would have changed. But in 63, there were, for all outward appearances, just five Rolling Stones. But in the end, Stu would stay with the Stones a lifetime longer than I did. A while back in the midst of my madness, I'd like to have had it that it was one of my brilliant moves and give you every twist and turn with callous delight. I'd have told you that such a cold, correct move could only have been made by a cold, astute fucker, and I was never uncomfortable about what I caused to go down in front of Stu. Some years ago I might have, but not now. Brian had to add insult to injury by falling up on my stew-must-go dictum with a fake assurance to Ian that he would be taken care of financially and would always be a part of the band. I didn't see the other Stones giving lip service to the charade, but none of them blocked my move either. There were some fundamental things I know Ian Stewart and I agreed on, like the more the stones rolled on as the hits got bigger and better. Brian Jones would deliver some of his finest music in his second burst of inspiration. He surprised us with his adept picking up of an instrument hitherto unknown to him and coming up with that polished gem that made recordings like Lady Jane, Out of Time, Paint It Black and so many more. Well, while Brian got off on the dulcimer, the sitar, marimbas, recorders, and more, he stopped getting down on the guitar, and Keith found himself doing double duty, not only on calls himself, but subbing for Brian. Sometimes on the road, Brian would shine and summon up all the power and glory of his bottleneck anthems I Want to Be Your Man and Little Red Rooster while scaling the twin guitar peaks of the first three Stones LPs with Keith. But all of this was slipping away, as was Brian. Midway through March 1966 at RCA Studios, came an night i couldn't leave the room as opposed to knowing when to and being able to brian had finally arrived in the studio after days of who knew where or when and absolutely no condition to clock in and work he managed to plug his guitar into his amp but that was as far as it got he was bulbous and bloated no color was right for him that day everything he wore an absurd combo of velvet stripes and squares reeked of disregard for the very fabric of clothing into life of untoward disarray Brian collapsed on the not-too-comfortable cold wood studio floor. He didn't notice. He was beyond feeling shame or hurt. Gray to the gills, ready to explode in mind and body, he clutched his guitar like a life preserver, though life was hard to find. He just lay in a pathetic fetal position on the floor, draining the life out of the room. Mick got paler. It was catching. I noticed with regret I was wearing maroon. Mick folded his arms and pushed his oracular gob. He would have been much more at home in an apron and slippers, tizzying around the kitchen and touching at the spuds for not coming to the boil. But we were in the studio where time was never on our side and we had work to do. For nearly an hour, we all walked on eggshells, overdubbing on already recording base, recorded basic tracks, working around the sad centerpiece of Pisces pain that lay in the middle of the studio, oblivious to being in the center of the very world he had dreamed of and where he was now self-destructing center stage. After nearly two hours of stepping over and around Brian, Dave Hassinger, the engineer, following the night's unspoken flight plan of ignore him, we don't need to talk about it, we need to work, set up microphones for percussion and organ with baffles surrounding the setup to keep any Brian sound out, as we now needed optimum quiet for some overdubs. Our engineer then let us know he could no longer ignore the hum coming from the amp in response to Brian's constantly rearranging his crashed form nearer it and the mics. We had been working on what to do, which was fitting as we all waited on each other to sort out Dave Hassinger's immediate problem of Brian zonked out on the studio floor. We all looked around the room, the floors, the walls, and each other for a volunteer to deal with the man overboard. I looked at Charlie, who just looked back and dared me. I looked over at Dave Hassinger, sitting there chewing the cud, his arms around his neck, feet raised on the recording console he'd clocked out and his body language quite clearly said I've told you the problem one of you has to tell me how to deal with it I looked at the still sullen pissed off Mick he wasn't going anywhere and his look back at me was in anger and said produce your way out of this one and let me know I've had it Charlie surveyed his kit domain and stayed in it Bill Wyman managed to ignore the proceedings and find something to smile on for at least five of every hour. I locked eyes with Keith. He took them on a trip around the room and dropped me off on top of the Jones heap, the Brian unseen, then brought us both back and squared off at me. Fuck you, I thought. Mick had picked up on Keith's call and sent out the same message to management. This was not part of the job description I'd signed up for. I could do Sidney Falco, but not Monroe Star. I got up Off the control room chair, walked into the studio towards Brian and the humming amp. I found the on-off switch, put it on-off, yanked the guitar lead out of the amp, and walked back into the control room. Nothing needed to be said. It was all part of the gig, the beginning of the last rites. My day would come. We all went back to work, knowing what to do and doing it, even though one of our aircraft was missing in action. That's what happens when you fly without radar were Keith last, Keith's last words on the night. And let's go ahead and hear another track. This is the Rolling Stones if you Let me an Outtake from those aftermath sessions. And that was the Rolling Stones' If You Let Me, which was unreleased until the early 70s when it came out on the Metamorphosis compilation featuring Brian Jones on Auto Harp. So he was functional that day. In fact, he was functional most of Aftermath. From what I can tell, there's maybe two songs he didn't play on. And I think that the... Uh, bit about Keith playing his guitar parts didn't start until Brian broke his hand trying to punch Anita Pallenberg a year later. And so it's it's on Between the Buttons where Keith had to do double duty on guitars. Aftermath features lots of songs with three or four guitar parts and definitely some of them are um, Brian Jones. Then um, he gets into a pretty interesting bit about S- Ian Stewart and and sort of tries to reach a detente or a resolution about his feelings towards Ian Ian Stewart's feelings toward him. And he does it by describing a 1989 occasion when he went to see uh, Charlie Watts' jazz band playing. Keith Richards was there, and Keith invited him back to his apartment. This was the first time Keith and Andrew had hung out in 20 years. And uh, during the the course of the conversation, Ian Stewart came up. And Ian Stewart had just passed away in the mid-80s of a, a heart attack in his late 30s. And Keith says Stu hated you, Andrew. He paused, allowing the dime to drop, and continued. But not as much as he hated Brian. He wanted to kill Brian. Keith let us both mull on that one, and I thought him. And I thought I heard him add, maybe he did. <laughs> and so, then he tells the story about how when Mick and Keith recorded Satisfaction, that they didn't think it was a single, but that Stu led the charge to insist that it was a single, and everybody else, including Brian and Bill Wyman and Andrew, voted that be the single and, and outvoted Keith and Mick. I think both Keith and Mick have denied that story. But then he comes back, and and uh, another factor in this whole incestuous stone scene is that Stu's wife, uh, Cynthia, was Andrew Lee Goldham's office assistant. So even though... Stu and Andrew did not get along, and Stu was the roadie for the band. His wife, uh, first girlfriend, and then wife was ALA's office assistant and very close to Andrew. He bumps into her after seeing Keith in the 80s, and, uh, and he says, There was only one weird moment I remembered, piquing sin's interest. What weird moment, she asked. It was about Stu. We were off on a tangent. First, what Stu thought of me, and then how much he loathed Brian. Then I realized I was listening to Keith speculate on how maybe St- Stu hated Brian enough to kill him. Fucking blew me away, I can tell you. I'd never heard that one before. Oh, I have, sin flatlined. Back at the time Brian died, I thought about it, too. And in fact, Andrew, I went through Stu's diary just to see if he could have, but he couldn't have. He just couldn't have been there when thingamajig. I mean, Brian, of course, he just couldn't have been there when Brian died. Anyway, what did Keith say Stu thought of you? He said, Stu hated me and never forgave me for kicking him out of the stones. Hmm, even Sin had to mark time on that one. He was a strange man, Andrew was our Stew. He didn't show it, but he was always terribly hurt by what happened. He had to be Sin, that was followed by silence. It's so sad, said Cynthia. You know, I never thought that Stu ever felt that it was you he should hate. I didn't either, but it was never spoken about. She says, couldn't be, agreed Sin. And what did our Keith have to say about himself? Nothing, I said. I'm not even sure if Keith thinks he was there, you know, when it got done. When I did it, he just carried on about Brian then then andrew tells the story of a day in the 1970s when he had been staying at cynthia and Stu's house uh, as he was having one of his crack ups and um cynthia was out and Stu comes in one morning from playing golf with glenn johns the famous record producer and his best friend andrew claims that the two of them had a semi-awkward chat and he says nothing happened Uh, He was afraid momentarily Stu was going to strangle him. He said, nothing happened. We chatted on and I noticed for the first time the wonderful warmth and soul that smiled through his eyes. That morning in his and Cynthia's kitchen, I stood and talked with a good looking man named Ian Stewart. We closed the circle and we knew where we stood with each other. My later flippancy with Keith was protective, stoned, and not needed. I realized that day and forgot until I cleared up my mind that Stu knew all along what I was about and what I had done. And finally, he knew better than anyone and took to his grave what everybody else had not done about it. Now, Cynthia has told me this exchange I've recalled as taking place between us never happened and that I've dreamt it up. So be it. I've just given you the truth of my recall. So, anyway, so it's nice to see that Oldham felt some pangs of conscious and let's go ahead and hear our our final cue this is the rolling stones from 1967 this is an outtake uh, from the between the button sessions called i can see it and i personally believe this is before brian uh, broke his wrist and that you're hearing both guitar players on this song so- The Rolling Stones, I can see it, an unreleased outtake from the between the buttons sessions. And then uh the next uh interesting tidbit oldham gets into is um a night where he ended up going out to party with Brian, something he very rarely did. The two of them never almost never associated. Uh, And he says, um, he introduces the anecdote by saying, the sex was great. Thank you, Brian. Somehow we had 24 hours to kill in New York, and I accepted Brian's offer to spend some time together and let him guide me, play host, and take me into his form of escape and freedom, which was your basic sex and drugs with a gorgeous bevy of lithe black and pink dames in a hotel suite overlooking Central Park. The leer of happiness on his face was a pleasant disgrace as he watched me dive into his world of sex games, sex roles, drugs, and oblivion. Some 12 or 15 hours later, I woke up and knew I still hadn't landed. I'd been taken everywhere, been everything, welcomed to sexual freedom so much that I didn't feel the need to have my own thoughts. I was a red door and she sang paint it black. I lay in bed with D and S on either side of me, so many of me, arms, heads, neck, and sex entwined. Brian stayed on the sofa but woke when the two black pearls and one thin pink blonde got up. I shared a bath with the two Negritas. As Brian sat on the tiled marble bathroom floor, tired but happy, the pink blonde had her head on his. There were five of us, and despite what you may have been taught, three into two will go. Five became one, a sexual androgyny mystified in one pauper-driven phallic rush, chomping at the sexual food chain while worshiping and devouring yourself. That night, Brian had once again been the leader of the pack. He'd been my manager for the night and decided what would be best for me. The darkness of the carnal pleasure was nevertheless lit so bright it made it hard to go outside. And then he tells another anecdote of nocturnal New York adventures with Brian. And this one's even more chilling. says, again in New York, some nine months or a year later, Following the sex fest, and in 1966, to be sure, there was another scene with Brian, an eerie and gothic one that would leave a mark forever and would mold a huge chunk of my future into a dead-end street. It was past 2.30 in the morning at the Drake Hotel, where for some bizarre reason, Brian and I had ended up with adjoining suites. I heard him on a muffled call from his bedroom. He then reentered the central living room and said to a wasted me, Andrew, I have to go see this doctor. I don't want to go alone. Would you go with me? These were the days before you could channel switch with your cable TV. Back then, you could only do it in your mind. A year earlier, Abco Gophers had happily delivered or collected prescriptions to and from my suite. Abco was Alan Klein's record company. I was the young genius having his every craze whim catered to. Now I was being asked to help Brian, dying twit, to hammer another nail in his coffin. And mine too, perhaps. Suddenly managing the stones was neither mine nor fun. What kind of doctor, Brian? I asked in a tone that carried the weight of, what kind of fucking doctor can it be you found who sees patients at three in the morning? I must admit I was curious. Well, it's hard to describe what he does, but he's good. Little Brian was anxious and in no mood to discourse. He wanted to get going, but still needed Andy to hold his hand. So are you ready? Are you coming? He smiled. We both laughed at the coming fiasco of God knows what, an elevator down to the lobby in a waiting limo. We limoed uptown on Park Avenue and crossed over to Lexington near 72nd, Brian giving the directions on a first-name basis to the driver. Frank, it's here. We'll be back. Just stay and wait, okay? Sure thing, Brian, said Frank. Nice guy, Brian, informed me as we hit the pavement. Perhaps he was stewing, Frank. We ambled to the left of, the, of an apartment's ground floor entrance, through a door and down a hall. At the first door on the right, Brian pressed a call button and yelled, "You, Lewis Jones, to see the doctor. The door buzzed, we hit the click and entered a small reception. Doctor's reception areas can be grim reminders and reapers of one's potential lot of the best of times, but through an eerie 3 a.m. neon haze, nobody beats the scenery. The magazines were as grubby and unkempt as their readers who looked up with a collective hostile gaze that said, we were here first and don't forget it. Brian knew what he was about. This was his beat. He crossed the reception and a glass partition opened slightly. He leant inside the do- opening and spoke to the other side. Hello, dear. How are you? Brian gushed. The doctor's expecting me. I brought my my Manager, as I told the doctor I would, yes, Mr. Jones said a quiet, tired female voice. I'll buzz you through, you're to go right in, both of you. We were buzzed through, Mr. Jones leading the way. The man with no neck and no future turned to give me a good-luck smile that told me he was just as buzzed with the proceedings as the door. We marched drug left into the general area, where, on one side, there was a long light of occupied formica linoleum curtain cubicles, confirming the adage that the city never sleeps. Opposite the cubicle, cubicle drapes was an open door leading into a dark office, impossible to detail in bad light. Behind an oak tank of a desk and its backdraft of papers, samples, and medical journals, sat a man of medium height, aged 50 to 60. What was left of his hair was disheveled, grained to black and curly. He had a sweaty, pale face with eyes orbiting behind specs and was attired in a day old button down shirt, old striped tie, limp and dead and an off-white doctor's trust me overall with fading blood marks over the pockets where the good doc had perhaps wiped his hands instead of washing them. "'Hi, doc. How are you?' scraped Brian. "'Fine.' The doctor didn't sound sure. He looked my way. "'This is your—sit here, and you come on in.' I sat down, and Brian followed the doc, and I looked around. After my eyes adjusted to the dimness, I could discern a row of medical jars filled with scissors of all shapes and sizes standing in disinfectant water. Alongside in another jar was what seemed to be at first sight some strange human part, but on closer inspection was revealed as, again standing in the water, either a trio of frankfurters or perfectly perfectly cloned pricks. The next jar was waterless and half filled with soggy sauerkraut, and the last jar held about half a dozen pickled cucumbers. Below the shelled Valley of the Jars was a large steel fridge-like sterilization container, and above the shelf an array of framed diplomas, citations, and individually signed photos. I scanned the photos. The first one I recognized was that of the other LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President of the United States. The photo was signed, but on a quick scan, impossible to decipher between the two and your good friend. Next to that was a citation from the office of the president, same Lyndon B, recognizing the good works and giving thanks for and on behalf of his country to Dr. Max Jacobson. They describes the pictures of Jackie Onassis. John John F. Kennedy uh, talks about uh, how Brian uh, comes bouncing out of the room. And and then the doc comes out and came my way, went behind his desk, wiped his hands over his bloodstained overalls and from jar number one, took a frankfurter, dunked it in the sauerkraut of jar number two, took a bite, chewed, looked at me, took another bite, chewed, swallowed, Frank gone. So tell me what's wrong with you. Uh, Nothing. I just came to keep him um, Mr. Jones company. I'm his manager. Yes, I know. But Lewis told me I should see you, said I should help you. So please tell me what's wrong i seized on the good old on the road standby well i do have herpes on my penis it's not from sex it's it's from nerves that's nothing i'll give you some ointment before you go lewis tells me you lead a stressful life you have to keep constantly on the ball people rely on you all the time and need your decisions that sort of thing dr max inspected a speck of frank on the end of his finger and flicked it with his thumbnail onto the floor i know what it's like a lot of people need you He indicated the wall behind him like the president. It's the same sort of thing, just a different war. And then uh, anyway, then he tells how um, Jacobson injected him with something he claimed was – extracts from monkey glands but turned out to have been straight methamphetamine and then on their way out they see alan j lerner the famous broadway uh songwriter uh typing away in jacobson's office jacobson is probably most famous because he's the inspiration for john john lennon's song dr robert and then to close the scene in the episode Uh, He says, Brian was waiting with a smile for me as I reentered the reception, herpes cream on my dick, bottle in the palm of my hand. He smiled on our little secret, conspiracy. That's what the smile said. He was feeling that good already. He didn't want to spend any time on how bad he'd been feeling before. We limoed down to the village to the electric circus on St. Mark's Place. It was past four, nearer to five, and the circus was closed. Brian banged on the door and asked for the owner, Jerry Brant. Uh, Ex-William Morris agent, now trend-making host of Manhattan, came to the door and hugs passed all around and he walked into the sin. The 60s were nearly over as we made our way to the floor. There in the middle of this psychedelic arena, lying on his back in the floor, guitar in hand, plugged into the house sound system, oblivious to us, oblivious to all, lost in the sound coming back at him from a 360-degree sound around blast was the Purple Haze himself, Jimi Hendrix." After 15 minutes of this, my watch said five, and I left Brian huddling with Jimmy. I caught a cab outside and headed uptown to the hotel. I got up the next day feeling like a president, and over the next three days made some of the worst decisions of my life. And so that's it for this episode of Let It Roll. We've been reading from Two Stoned by Andrew Gugaldum, and next time we'll come back and we'll finish the story. It gets even grimmer. Thanks for listening.
1: Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let it Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss the autobiography of Grandmaster Flash. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.